Hi, everyone, and it's good to be back in New York City. They say the Big Apple. Why do they call this the Big Apple? Does anyone know, actually? Uh, people are shaking their heads here. Okay, so uh, hello, everyone. Um, also, I know that Boston's streaming in, so we flipped the script here. I'm usually preaching from Boston, and then you guys are seeing me on video, but um, hi, everyone in Boston. It feels like it's been an eternity that we've been gone from that place, so I know... There's been sickness going around there, so hope everyone's doing okay. So, all right, I know it's finals, and there's some um, for a lot of the students. And so, um, when you think of finals, it's always there's stress. And so, maybe you can turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself, and think of what you're looking forward to this summer. Maybe that will offset some of the stress that you might be feeling right now. So, what are you looking forward to this summer? Okay, so let's do that right now, just a minute. Well, um, first of all, um, yeah, I hope there's some things that you're looking forward to in the summer, and um, forgot to mention, it's Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day. Um, I know there's some, uh, this is a young crowd here, but there are actually moms here in our midst. If you are a mom, can you stand here, like you're a mom? Way back there, too. Okay, all right. And of course, uh, hi to all the moms in Boston, and... So, yeah, all right. Well, we'll uh, be covering uh, a new series, um, First Peter, and I thought this is an appropriate book to cover because um, it's a letter written during a time of great challenge for the Christians. So you should have a, a, a sheet that has today's text, um, and what I would like for you to do is maybe just um, read that um, I know it's probably like, as long as you're close anyway, maybe you could read like uh, a few verses at a time and alternate and then, um, and then look up when you're done. So, all right. Or you could just read it by yourself. But um, if you want, you could just like turn to the person next to you and you can read it a few verses at a time. So let's do that. You light up the darkness to technicolor. And a title for this passage. Like, how would you title this passage? And so, um, let me just give you a, uh, just before you read it, let me just give you my example from this text. So, I picked, um, smile while you are in trials, elect exiles. <laughs> it's just so bad, I don't know, but tried to rhyme that. But uh, it's from verses 1 and 6. Uh, so that was my title, Smile While You Are in Trials, Elect Exiles. Okay, all right. Okay, you could do better than that. So come up with a verse and a, a title that's tied to that verse, and, and, why, and maybe you can, you know, explain why you chose that. So give you some time to read the passage first. Okay, let's do that. Okay, well, we have to, we have to, yeah, continue. So anybody actually came up with a title? That you want to, it's got to be better than this, right? Like, just, uh, <laughs> just say anything. It doesn't have to rhyme or it's just your title and key verse. Any? Yes, Justin. New court case, faith on trial will prevail. Faith, new court case, faith on trial will prevail. <laughs> That's pretty solid. Okay, all right. And then was there a verse that you were referencing from... Uh, Verse 6, okay. Yeah, by various trials. Okay, you've been... Okay, all right. 
Any, any other? Want to share your... People are now suddenly bashful here. Okay. All right. Well, I just wanted you to go through that because um, we're going to try something different. We usually do um, kind of ch- cover chunks at a time uh, in our messages, and sometimes it's just thematic. But this time, we're just going to go verse by verse through First Peter. It's five chapters long, very short. So you could actually read the whole thing on your own time, and I encourage you to do that. But we're going to just go systematically verse by verse. So we'll just see how that goes. Okay, so a little bit of background of this letter, first of all. Um, it was written um, by Apostle Peter. You know, it's First Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he's writing this letter mostly to Gentile converts, uh, to Christianity. And they are scattered throughout uh, this region called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so um, you'll see this here is where uh, you notice in verse 1 at the bottom there, I highlighted the, 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 the provinces, and they make up this region called Asia Minor. So this is um, uh, the letter that's being circulated through these provinces. And um, this is the, the background of this letter is, is uh, it's, it's a time of persecution to, to Christians, and it's starting to ramp up. And what type of persecution is happening? Well, I think the big persecution during this period was uh, under Emperor Nero. So some of you who studied history, uh, this is around 62 to 64 AD. And some of you may know from history that Nero is sort of this kooky emperor of Rome, and um, we're not going to get into his personality, but there was a great fire in Rome, and then it was then that Nero just, because he didn't want to be culpable, he blame the Christians for that fire, and it happened around 64 AD. And so uh, if you want to just read up on it, like look that up. It's a great fire in Rome, and it destroyed like huge sections of the city. And so there's an intense persecution that breaks out against Christians, and eventually uh, Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul is said to have been martyred under Nero. So this letter then, going back to why this letter was written, it's written to the persecuted Christians, and because they are also besieged uh, during this period. So going to verse 1, I just, like I said, we're going to go verse by verse. We're not going to cover every verse, but for the most part in this chapter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I just want to pause there. Apostle of Jesus Christ. What does apostle mean? And it actually literally means one who is sent. And it's like sent by who? It's, well, it's apostle of Jesus Christ. So sent by Jesus Christ. So Paul, Peter refers to himself as one who is sent by Jesus Christ, certified messenger commissioned by Jesus as his special representative to what? To proclaim this gospel message. And this is Peter's identity. He's re- referring to himself as an apostle. And I thought that was kind of cool because if you know Peter's story, uh, it's interesting that he self-identifies himself this way because he could have identified himself in any number of ways, particularly some negative identities because, remember, he's the one that betrayed Jesus three times. Uh, and so he could have said to himself these other identities, Peter the b- betrayer, or I'm a failure, or uh, I'm a coward. Like, that could be his self-speak. But instead, he says, I'm an apostle. Like, isn't that cool? Only the gospel enables you to transform your identity in this kind of way. And I thought, well, what other identities could he have embraced? He could have uh, embraced these other identities that the world 
uh, ascribes to people in general, and it's generally by occupation, right? So he could have been said Peter the fisherman, or I don't know, Peter a peasant, or something like that. But um, so I just want to pause here. If you think about it, there are many labels and titles that the world um, gives to us in life, and usually it's based on some characteristic or some talent, and I don't know what identities are swirling on in your head right now, but generally, even from a very early age, like Clay's here, and even such at a young age, right? Uh, this is John and Kat's son. Uh, you're given, like, a certain label, like, especially if Clay hits baseball really, like, really well, like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're sporty, you know? <laughs> you're, you're, an athlete, you're an athlete, and suddenly he's like, yeah, I'm Clay, the athlete, you know? Suddenly that, that's the identity that he takes on, right? And then you get older, and then you're good at, like, coding or something, and you're like, the programmer or something. So I remember uh, my first, one of my first jobs as a programmer, even though I knew nothing about coding. Uh, that's another story, by the way. I was a molecular biology major, and then suddenly I got this job as a pro programmer. And I remember going into my office, first day of work, and it said, Manny, Kim, software engineer. Wow, I was like, never thought that I would have that title, you know? <laughs> Especially since I never took a, one computer programming class uh, ever up to that point and to be given that title, wow, by grace or something like that. But anyway, um, these titles that the world confers upon us based, usually are based upon your ability, right? And which is why I think that leaves us so insecure because if you meet someone better and you, your whole identity is wrapped around that, that quality of yours, uh, then, then you're going to start to feel very insecure. You're going to start to lose. Once you start to lose your ability and, and your identity erodes along with it. So just want to make that observation that we're given different identities by the world. But I just want to make this claim. It's neither all that substantial nor is it steady enough to carry you throughout life. But the good news is that God has given us an identity with a more permanent status. And we need to fight for this identity. Because, and how do you do that? You go back to the gospel that you heard. Some of you became Christian this past year. You have to go back to the gospel because the world confers upon you certain identities and you forget. So you go back to the gospel and you're reminded, who am I again? Where's my ultimate destiny? Yes, Jesus died for me. It means I am valuable cherished, beloved, those identities that is true and is more stable, like that's what we need to fight for. And so as we reflect on that, I think it can intensify that sense of identity. That's right. I am a child of God. I am an apostle. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, it's a title that I think is forged in the highest of heavens. And uh, it's a, a lofty title that he did not earn. And the closest I can think of it's like a parent who, uh, like if you're a daughter or son, you didn't earn that, but that's just simply your title. So it's interesting. The next part is, um, it says, elect exiles. So that was where I got my title, you know, elect exiles. And what does he mean by to those who are elect exiles? That's who he's writing to. And immediately I thought about the word exile it refers to Jewish history, which is in the Babylonian exile, 586 um, Actually, it's 586 B.C. That's a mistake on that slide. And um, so the Jews were exiled from their homeland in Jerusalem, and then they were 
scattered all throughout Mediterranean, including Babylon. And so, of course, the Jewish people would have thought about that imagery, that, that event in history. But he's writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. So Peter uses the imagery of exiles, going back to that, um, to evoke this sense that this world is not my home, because that's what an exile is, right? You're displaced from your true home. And so what are they displaced from? He's saying, you are the elect exiles. You're, you're displaced from your true home that is heaven. And so to address them as elect exiles must have been very intentional to remind these persecuted Christians that this was only temporary because they were ultimately nomads, pilgrims, that this short period on earth was a waypoint until they reached their final destination. So the fact that the world is not our home, that we are elect exiles too, uh, I think that can bring us great comfort, especially when you feel marginalized for being a Christian, for your faith. And certainly the world makes us feel that way if that's your identity, right? Like we, you know, professors, friends, administrators who brand Christians as weird or I don't know, yeah, whatever that title that makes us feel illegitimate, uh, to be reminded that our hope is not in this world anyway, that through the resurrection of Jesus, that we can hope in a more permanent home one day. That is a living hope. Uh, this will be, I think, the theme throughout, the, the, not only First Peter chapter 1, but throughout. So going to verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ... And um, uh, I just want to note here that I noted Father, Spirit, Jesus Christ in blue there. And it's just uh, from the very early on in church history, there's the doctrine of the Trinity. We're not going to get into it, but note Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. Uh, verse 2, it says, In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Sanctific sanctification is one of these theological words, but all that means is it's, uh, as you, after you become Christian, it's an ever-growing control over your sinful nature. Because I think once you become a Christian, it's not like you immediately become like holy, right? Like you, it, it's going to be a battle. And so sanctification is accomplished, how then? Uh, through an ever-growing submission to Christ's authority. And what do I mean by that? It says here in this verse, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Because the gospel content has not changed. It's still the same content than when you first made the decision to become a Christian. But you might wonder, then why don't I behave differently? And it's because we are in this battle, this internal battle, if you will, between our old values and our old nature and the new ones. And how do you achieve being new? That process is called sanctification, and it happens through obedience over time, and then you eventually take on the nature of Christ. So if your roommate is giving you a hard time, instead of lashing out in frustration and anger, you go out of my obedience to Christ, I will respond in patience and generosity of spirit. And instead of lashing out, you go, hey, let's talk about it. And in the process, you reaffirm your bonds and then go out for some boba or something like that, right? And then, and then, in that sense, you become more and more like Christ. Imagine you doing that over time. 
Like another example I thought about is when you're home alone and you have all these dark thoughts and rather than sink deeper into despair because something didn't go right in your life um, and, and maybe your old self would escape into entertainment, uh, but instead you go, no, God has given me a new identity. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray or I'm going to go to God's word to give strength or I might just go out and look for opportunities to love people, and you'll decide to cook for someone or something like that. And if you keep doing that, this is what it means. You become sanctified, and it's through the process of, of obedience to Jesus Christ. And of course, these, that sanctification process is uh, through the Spirit. So it's not just simply your effort that accomplishes this, but the Holy Spirit will empower us. Um, Verse 3, blessed be the God the fa- and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I thought that was a very interesting phrase. He has caused us. Literally, it means having given birth. So Christian life, I don't know if you've heard this term, when you become a Christian, you become born again. Christian life is a new birth. In other words, we are restored into a new relationship with God, and God causes us to be born again. And that makes so much sense. Think about that. To be born, what does a baby have to do? Like, just Nothing, right? A, a child is just born into the world through no labor of his own. And becoming a Christian is like that. It's, it's, it's not about what we can do necessarily, like just like to get ourselves born again. We don't actually have to do anything. In fact, Christianity is unique in that you try as you might, all the other religions of the world, to, to climb your way to their version of heaven. Uh, in, in, in the Christian worldview, there's no amount of good work that you could do, no amount of good intentions or labor that will get you there. Everything to us is done by God. God has caused us to be born again, sending Jesus Christ on the cross to atone for our sins, and then life is ushered into us. So I thought it was a very interesting pray, uh, phrase. And so, of course, um, because of it, we are now... Uh, so. I, going back to, um, according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And I think um, there's praise here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's reminded that as God has caused us to be born again, he's reminded of, hey, be reminded of your salvation. And of course, that's going to lead to blessed be the God. And, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, because it wasn't because you earned that. And I think we need to be reminded of this, um, of how God caused us to be born again. Uh, maybe he did that initially by sending someone into your life to preach the gospel to you, and we're at an end of a year, a school year. Who was that person that God sent? Maybe it started off as an invitation to a special talk, or an invitation to an apartment of some of the mentors here to the Christies, played board games, uh, or to an outing, and then you realize at that moment, like maybe you went to a special talk that these guys put on, and then you realize, hey, I didn't know this was a Christian group. And you eyed the exit signs <laughs> because you were in the middle row in the middle seat. You couldn't get up, and maybe you pretended that someone texted you <laughs> to get out of there. But you decided, let's hear what this is all about and you got to hear the gospel message, and then here you are. You became Christian. God did that. God did that. And safe to say every blessing 
that we have received relationships, purpose, fulfillment. It's because of God out of his mercy. So blessed be to him. So, uh, and then it says, we are, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. It's not a dead hope because a living hope is grounded in reality. A dead hope would be grounded in some kind of wishful thinking, but no, it's a living hope. It's grounded in reality based on the resurrection of Jesus. And that means he is living. He is a living Lord. And we will also share destiny with him. And so, you know, living things, I just want to pause here and say living things, they grow, right? So then how does this hope grow in us? And I think it grows when we reflect over this truth. And I was mentioning that to you before about how we need to yeah, think about the gospel again, go back to it, and then remember, like, who am I again? Like, where's my destiny? I'm a child of God. And remind yourself of your identity, but also just remind yourself of these bedrock truths of, of God. Remember, like, your understanding of the world when you were a child and you didn't really understand physics, um, and so you were, like, five years old, and then you decided you're going to be a superman, and you're going to jump off, whatever, and you're, I'm going to fly, and then you fall, and then you discover gravity, you know? Um, and then out of that pain of that, you go, yeah, I guess gravity exists. And then you did experiments in high school on a roller coaster. I don't know if you've done this, using a tennis ball and dropping at the peak of the arc on the roller coaster, 9.8 meters per second squared. And then you realize, oh, wow, the ball is falling, and I'm falling at the same rate. And, and then your understanding of physics become more true as you go back and you go, wait a minute, and then it, you go, oh, yeah, that time I fell off the thing, pretending that I was Superman. <laughs> like, and your convictions grow, and that's how truth is. So in order for us, our hope to grow, we need to meditate on it, see the world and go, wow, it is so true, the, what the Bible says about mankind, about my sinfulness, the way it is. And I think in that sense, the hope continues to grow even after you become a Christian. Um, and then it says, living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Um, I love these three words, imperishable, that is not able to be destroyed, right? Undefiled, not polluted, unfading, not subject to decay. I thought Peter used these particular words to describe our inheritance because it's so hard to describe heaven in the positive, right? Because of course, no one's been there. So Apostle Peter describes it in the negatives. It's not going to fade. It's not going to fare perish. And it's not going to be defiled. And it's kept in heaven for you. The word kept here is, means it's utterly safe and guaranteed. What words of, what tremendous words of comfort? Each of these words, like kept in heaven for you, which means that heaven is safely kept for me and you. And are, it's for you, so it's your name written on it. And it kind of sounds sentimental like uh, those cards that you get, right? Bringing all my wishes and thoughts for you, right? It's like, it's like that. But it's more than mere sentiment here. Our salvation was purchased at a high cost. And the cost of God's one and only son is because God loves you. The risk of sounding 
overly sentimental. That is true. God saved the world, but he also saved you. The destiny of heaven is kept for you and I, your name there. And man, that's being kept for us, our future home. And it's a reminder of God's love for you. And it's ultimately, I think, very, very reassuring. Um, So I'm going to skip verse 5. Go to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What type of trials must he be referring to here? And of course, it's persecution, but it's more than just the persecution. It's like all-encompassing when we think about trials, right? Uh, It's part of life, like fighting, like trials of life, fighting the subways here in New York City, miserable weather at times. Um, Or if you live in a nicer place still, just life, just going to the malls and fighting people at the malls. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Various trials, you know. Um, It includes everything. It includes everything from mundane life to uh, poverty, COVID, um, being relationally marginalized for your faith, disappointments, the drama of your own sins and character flaws. So in, how are we to respond? And Apostle Peter says, in this you rejoice. He says, rejoice in the midst of these various trials. And why? Because it says, it's for a little while. It's for a little while. In other words, these various trials in life are temporary. And temporary means a year, it means several years, it could mean a lifetime. But it's still a little while in light of eternity. And so right now, I don't know the trials that you're going through personally, but I just want to assume that each of us have various trials. And as you're going through it, I urge you to remember this. Rejoice. Because we say this a lot, life is short, death is certain, but eternity is long. And so, you know, I'm 50 now, and time has gone by so fast. I know I don't look 50. (laughs) You guys think, wow, I thought you were 25. No, just kidding. Um, And yeah, I imagine myself still like being able to light up a basketball court. Like, not that I ever really did that, (laughs) but there was a time I thought I did that. And time, life is short. It goes, it's for a little while. It's transient. Suddenly I'm like this old. And and so in light of heaven, what we experience now is just the blink of an eye, knowing that eternity awaits us. We can bear the various trials that we face. And even we're able to rejoice. So what are the purpose of these trials? Why go through these trials? Well, Peter explains it. So that... Verse 7, the testedness, the tested genuineness of your faith. Uh, the trials fit us for heaven. It, it, it tests the genuineness of our faith. There's nothing like trials that can, then, that, that can accomplish this. Um, because trials is what enables us to adapt and change and grow and mature. It doesn't get accomplished when you're in a bubble. So you know that, like when you live in a messy room, I don't know if your room is messy, but you sort of get used to it, right? Like you get used to it. Um, 
And so it may smell whatever, and you don't even need Febreze or whatever, but it's okay. You're like, you're used to it. And someone say, hey, no, it smells, and you need to make your bed, and then, and then suddenly you are under trial. <laughs> and this will test the genuineness of your cleanliness. And then instead of rebelling, you obey and make the bed, and then you what? You grow through that and grow in that context. That example is you become cleaner you know, over time, right? Trials. It, it challenges you. Uh, in that way. So trials and suffering is a crucial ingredient that God uses to purify our faith. We mature when we face our trials head on. And I think this is different than the, what the world teaches us because I think the world indoctrinates us to believe that we should avoid trials that at all costs, avoid pain, anything that makes us feel stressed and makes us anxious, avoid that. And this is not to denigrate those of us who genuinely struggle with uh, just the whole mental health. But man, like when we move toward the potential pain and we open ourselves to, in quote, like shocks in the system to, your, to yourself, then I think a person is able to grow and mature. Uh, and in this instance, it tests the genuineness of your faith. So if we strive to avoid pain and you just seek comfort all the time, then in many ways you're avoiding the work that God wants to do in you. And so may that perseverance and resolve lead you to then uh, find it will result in praise and glory and honor to God just in your response to these trials. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And That's his statement to the people, the exiles, but that's also our situation now. We have not seen him like Apostle Peter did, and yet we love him because the biblical definition of love is not so much a feeling, but it's loyalty, it's submission. And so when you make your salvation decision, you are committing to follow him and submit to his authority. So just would like us to continue to love him through proper response to trials. And then in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is the outcome and is not something that uh, uh, you need to be in heaven to experience. It's actually, it happens like right now. Like as soon as you make that decision, you can experience that changed life, changing values, as I said, that sanctification process, changing vision and desires and relational patterns. And some of you have experienced this already changed in your willingness to serve before maybe you were shy and introverted and now you have you go out of your way to care for others and regularly minister to others and that's the start of a change that has happened it's an outcome uh, of your faith and hopefully you're seeing the fruit of that more and more over time and again the outcome depends on the genuineness of your faith and if you're not seeing this outcome you need to go back and repent of the areas that you have not been obeying God. Maybe there's some idols that you need to relinquish and repent of money, romance, career, ambitions, and, and, and comfort because the outcome of your faith should lead to this change uh, in your life. And then in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully 
um, talks about, Peter talks about the prophets of the Old Testament who searched and inquired carefully. It means that they were prophesying about the gospel but didn't quite know it. They didn't know Jesus would come. Uh, they only had a partial picture, and yet they placed their hope in what God would eventually do through Jesus. But what the prophets did not know, and here's the amazing thing, and I hope you share in my sense of wonder about this. What the prophets didn't know, it has now been announced to you and I, the gospel message. And so it was revealed to them that they were not serving, they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, things into which angels long to look. So we've been given the privilege and glories of the full revelation of the gospel, and now we get to proclaim it. And that's the note on which I want to end the message today. We've been given this amazing salvation. And what are we to do with it? We are to announce it. And how blessed, how blessed is it to be living in an age uh, of gospel fulfillment instead of during an age where the prophets uh, of the prophets where the gospel was just carefully hinted at, even hidden from the angels, but never fully revealed. We have that message, that full revelation of God. We've come full circle. Remember how we began this letter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We are apostles of Jesus Christ. We have been sent, commissioned by Jesus to proclaim this wonderful gospel message. And so, you know, we're here in New York City, and those of you watching in Boston, wherever you guys might be, and I hope that this summer in particular, God will place upon your heart a burden for the world that you'll see people and that you'll see your identity as apostles. I know it's challenging, but this is a, a privilege, almost that secret knowledge that's been entrusted to you and I. And so we have this message sent from heaven to bring this living hope to people. And so let's keep the mission of preaching the gospel alive in our hearts. And I think it's fitting that we sort of end the academic school year on this chapter because I think it's the living hope that brought the team out to New York. It's the living hope that will allow us to continue to build as we move forward. And I really invite all the students, if you're Christian, to join with us in proclaiming this good news. So um, I have a little gift for you, a little card. It's not like <laughs> I say a gift. <laughs> and it's a summary of the message points. Um, and it's just done A through G, I think it is. Is that right? And those of you watching, um, you could, here's the summary of points on slide if you don't have the actual. Um, so maybe you can just kind of go over it with the person next to you, and then I will, we will have a closing song. So let's take a minute to review these points, maybe even just kind of preach it to each other, um, a point that stood out to you. Okay, so let's do that.